0: Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Mount Pleasant City Connect. I'm your host, Jim Bolella. Mount Pleasant City Connect is a radio show that tries to bring the uh, city of Mount Pleasant closer to the residents. We interview people that work at the city and figure out how everything runs. Our guest today is Krista Carabelli, Social Crisis Advocate for the Mount Pleasant Division of uh, Public Safety. Krista, uh, welcome and thank you for being here today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, uh, you have social crisis advocate. Yes. Um... That sounds like a uh, uh, a lot, because <laughs> <laughs> social crisis is all around us, isn't it?
1: It is, and it encompasses quite a bit, actually. Um, you know, we talk to people every day, and we are advocating for them every day. But you know, that crisis word in there, it means that we're mostly handling things in the moment. So,
0: all right. So the uh, um, how does how does your role social crisis advocate? How does that fit in with? The uh, Division of Public Safety here in the city?
1: Um, So I mostly work with our local police department and our fire department. Um, They are the ones who are handling crisis every day Um, and so I work literally in the department down the hallway from them Um, and they come to me about anything that is mental health related or they call me to a scene if it seems like that would be something that I could be of help with.
0: Okay so We're uh, uh, I'm certainly well aware that uh, mental health is, you know, a bigger issue today than it than it's ever been, I think, in my lifetime. And I don't know if it's uh, uh, because mental health is a is a larger problem now or if just the awareness of it is greater. Do you have a take on that?
1: I do think the awareness of it is greater. I mean, I think mental health has been around for a long time. I don't think we've called it mental health the entire time that we've been discussing this. Um, But, I mean, the information age is now we know so much and we have access to it at our fingertips. So being able to look at something and go, oh, wow, I'm experiencing that. Maybe I should talk to somebody about that is a lot easier than I think it was 20, 30, 100 years ago
0: yeah, so there, there's still, uh, even though we have greater awareness and we have so much more information now and, and research, uh, there still can be a stigma attached to individuals who might admit that they need counseling or seek counseling or, or any kind of help with a, uh, a mental health issue. How do you address that?
1: Well, we like to talk about mental health as health. So it's health care, just as similar as going to your doctor or um, you know, if you get injured playing a game, you see someone to help you recover from that. It's the same kind of thing. Um, the brain is a muscle. It's part of our bodies. And while we like to think about it as something more outside of ourselves, um, it really is just another part of our body. And so being able to go and look at that and say, okay, what is going on with my brain and what do I need help with with my brain? And it might be as simple as something saying like, oh, I've been struggling at work, I've been struggling to sleep, or, you know, I want to get better at this, and I've not worked on that before. That's something you can do without having to have a significant trauma or crises.
0: Yeah, and it's really, uh, to me, it seems like a a real asset to be able to deal with it in this way, because I know that when I was a kid, uh, the attitude towards these types of issues was walk it off you know, you weren't allowed to uh, to really have such issues. It was just like, ah, oh, you're being weird. Walk it off, you know, knock or, or just stop stop acting that way. Straighten up and fly right, you know, and now mm-hmm. we can um, we can kind of zoom in on it a little bit and actually address it to alleviate some of the suffering that people are going through. I think that the, uh, the suffering end of it has been greatly misunderstood. Would that be accurate?
1: I would say so. I think that there is, are a lot of, like you said, stigmas, stereotypes, things that people assume are mental health or assume that are easy to fix or that assume that you should be able to walk away and just be fine, toughen up. But that's not necessarily the reality that people live in. There's lots of reasons somebody could be experiencing something. And until you sit down and talk about it with somebody who you trust or somebody who's unbiased, it can be difficult to really figure that out. Um, You know, we talk about how in my field of work, counselors need counselors. We need people that we can go talk to to be able to help us figure out what's going on with us as well. Um, We're just you can't be an expert on yourself when you live inside yourself. Um, You know, you can talk about the things that are going on, but getting that outside perspective can really adjust your understanding of what's going on around you.
0: Yeah. When you're uh, you can't evaluate yourself because you're too close to the subject matter. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you can't be objective. (laughs) I totally get that. (laughs) And so when we talk about um, treatment and counseling, or maybe it's medication, but all these things that are connected with it, uh, for the individual who may want to talk to a counselor, uh, certainly it's part of self-care. Yes. uh, But also it's about wanting to improve the quality of your life. Some people uh, it may be as simple as wanting to perform better at work, or uh, for the people who might be students, uh, wanting to interface in a more productive way with your peers, working together in groups on projects, which I know many students have an issue with these days. Uh, and, you know, wanting to overcome that so you can accomplish a wider variety of things in your life uh, can also be an objective of mental health treatment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mental health treatment, it doesn't have to have a giant disorder connected to it by any means. Um, you know these are things it's like I've said the, the brains and muscles so what do you do when you want to do something better if I don't be able to lift more weights I go practice I go to a trainer I go to someone who can help me with that it's no different for the muscle of our brain so if there's something that you're looking to do that you want to improve upon let's say you want to get better at speaking to crowds let's say that you have a teacher that is just uh, we all have them the ones that are very strict and it's hard to deal with that sometimes okay so how can I better deal with this confrontation that I'm not used to and it doesn't necessarily mean anything's quote unquote wrong but that doesn't mean that you can't get better at things in life as well
0: for sure we all we all have something we can improve on that's for sure uh, now dealing with uh, when dealing with young people and to be more specific college-aged people and I see this all the time you know, working here at the university and uh, our previous uh, uh, staff, psychiatrist uh, Dr. Hillard. Uh, got to talk to him in connection with our mental health radio show we do on our sister station 101.1 and uh, what he said to me was anxiety and panic disorders are the biggest issue that people that in that age group are dealing with. Now do you find that that is echoed in the community across a wider age group or is that really more uh, popular with just a younger demographic.
1: No, I'd say that's pretty generalized across most of society, at least here in the U.S. I think the the stats are that 19% of adults at any given time are struggling with an anxiety disorder, and that's having enough of an anxiety inhibit the parts of their life that they have been diagnosed with a disorder for it. Um, and then we have the 7% of children who experience the same thing. So um, it's a large amount it's a large group of people i think it's over 40 million people that we talk about when we talk about who has anxiety in our society um and you know that would include you know adults 18 and up so we're talking about college students in that field as well
0: i'd like to follow up with that statistic you mentioned 19 percent of adults um are have a diagnosable
1: yes mental illness it's been diagnosed as anxiety
0: oh anxiety Mm -hmm. specifically Mm -hmm. okay um so can you, uh, can you discuss for a minute the range of behaviors that might be reflected in someone who's struggling with anxiety? So what's sort of the, um, the, the mild end and what's the more extreme end of what can happen to a person who's suffering from anxiety, an anxiety disorder?
1: So an anxiety disorder has a few conditions that need to be met in order to be able to say, yes, we can diagnose this as a disorder, we can bill it out to an insurance company, is that you can see a doctor and get a medication for it. Um, But, you know, on, on an end of... Um, you know, I feel anxious every time I get to work and it makes me feel like I get into work and it takes me a while before I can feel comfortable doing my job. That's an impact on your, la- your daily life. So we really look at this from the standard of how does this impact you every day? What goes on in your world every single day that you feel you can't move forward without having some sort of disruption from your anxiety. So if that means I can't make a phone call to order pizza, well, you might be struggling with some anxiety there. If you're struggling to, um, you know, drive in traffic, lots of people have concerns about driving in traffic. But if you're having trouble driving down a two-lane road that's in a suburb, that might be something more than just um in New York City and it's a lot of traffic and it's stressful. Um, so being able to figure that out for yourself and then hopefully with a professional, um, you know, that's, that's something that we can talk about all day long. But the idea that any sort of thing can really manifest as an anxiety disorder, um, it, it's really more about how does it impact your daily life? It's really more about what is this doing to cause you to feel, I can't function a way that I think I used to be able to function or a way that I'd like to be able to function.
0: Right. So there's a distinction here. Uh, if I understand what you're saying correctly, it's it, it can be interpreted as that we all suffer from anxiety from time to time. Absolutely. Um, if I forget to put the garbage out, I have a little bit of anxiety because that means I have to have stinky garbage in the garage for another week. But it doesn't impact my ability to do my job or live my life. Correct. I have an anxious feeling and it comes and goes and that's just part of being human. And then there's the type of anxiety that can prevent you from accomplishing certain tasks or interfacing with certain people in a certain way. So you cannot go about your day as you would like to because you have this this sort of barrier, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's impacting you enough that maybe you're even changing your behavior in order to better accommodate the anxiety. So maybe I avoid certain streets when I'm driving because they stress me out. Is that impacting you enough that you're taking an extra 20 minutes to get to work? Because that's an impact on your day. Um, Are you having to retake test after test because I just cannot sit down and I get to the paper and the words all go blurry and I cannot read it? That's an impact on your day. It's an impact on your life. So when we look at this, um, you know, some people might experience more milder anxiety symptoms of like, I just feel overwhelmed when certain things are happening, but it doesn't impact me every single day in the same way. And then there are people on the other end of that who are like, I have a hard time leaving my house. And that's something that is much more impactful.
0: Yeah, that would be a big deal. Yes. So uh, because you are connected with um, the Mount Pleasant Division of Public Safety, I'm curious, with the um, the increased, in, uh, increased awareness of mental health and how it impacts such a large number of people in our society, uh, what impacts... Does this have on criminal behavior? Oh, which which I if I understand correctly, uh, you know, professionals would call antisocial behavior. So that can be very much connected to uh, a mental health issue.
1: Yeah, I mean if we look at um, you know, prison populations, um institutionals in general, institutionalized people can absolutely it can cause mental health issues. Um, but for the most part, um, most people want to live in a society and want to collaborate and want that's like our, our norm is to be social our norm is to um, want to have a somewhat successful life um, and people who are involved in criminal activity whether that's by choice or not and there's there's all kinds of things we could talk about in regards to um, you know the impacts of childhood and the impacts of poverty and the impacts of all these things that that change how we look at criminal activity um, and biases and all that great stuff but to say that the mental health is nowhere near it is just is is wrong there's tons and tons of mental health stuff going on with people who are experiencing um, you know criminal activity and that might just be because they don't have access to the supports that maybe some other people do they don't have the um ability to seek out help in a way that other people might be able to do. If we look at a middle-class family whose you know, child is suffering with anxiety and they can get them to a counselor or to a doctor because they have insurance and they can afford that, that's going to look drastically different than somebody who is struggling with making sure they have food on their table every week. So a lot of this stuff is impacted and then it just broadens as that person grows Um, And those things aren't addressed. So it can lead to criminal activity. Absolutely. But there's also lots of places that that something like that can lead.
0: Okay. So um, because we know that anxiety is such a widespread issue, could you possibly give some tips on how people could manage anxiety?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's really important when we're looking at anxiety in particular to look at the people around us and the supports we have around us. Um, one of the assessments that we do in terms of assessing somebody for risk or assessing somebody for um, you know, being able to manage something like anxiety. Okay, so who in your life do you talk to about this? Who around you helps you when you're having a panic attack? Who... Do you rely on or do you talk to about these specific things in your life? Sometimes there's lots of people and lots of support and sometimes it's very little. And so those kinds of things can really um, help a person see, oh, wow, I don't have a lot of supports. Maybe I should do something about that and this anxiety will reduce, right? Um, There's also the idea that, you know, just talking about the anxiety and making it more known um, that can also impact how you view it yourself. So if it becomes a more of a normal thing, you can start doing things to cope with it in a way that allows you to exist better in society and do the things that you want to do.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, well, it, it's uh, sometimes it feels like as the awareness of these types of things grows, so should our compassion for people who are uh, suffering from these conditions, because. Hopefully, we have a greater understanding of where confusing behavior may be coming from. Sometimes people frustrate us, right? And I see this with uh, uh, I see this people dealing with their their own children, and sometimes children will tax your patients and your their behavior can seem really difficult to understand. And I certainly have seen some friends with their kids. You know, when when they have exhausted their ability to deal with it at home. They say, I think it's time to see a counselor because, um, we keep going in a circle and we're not getting anywhere and we can't understand what's happening and we can't break the cycle. And clearly the parents and the child are frustrated. And, uh, it's okay to say there may be an issue here that we're not equipped to deal with. And it's time to bring in somebody from the outside who has, who has this as a specialty. Um, and so with, uh, with your title being advocate, social crisis advocate, can you give an example of uh, how you would act in that capacity in a specific situation?
1: Sure. Um, so when we look at families and we look at children in particular, oftentimes we look at it as a system. So children can't change their environment a lot of the time. They have to exist in a certain environment. And so the behavior there could be related to the environment or it could not, but that's definitely part of the conversation. And so oftentimes parents are asked to be part of that conversation. So if I go to a home and I have a child who's having disruptive behavior and the police are being called or the parents are calling the police because they're not sure what to do about it and it's getting something beyond something they can control or understand – um, there are plenty of resources in our community that we can reach out to. I know CMH has a great family therapy um, program. They have a program for people who are experiencing even greater mental health issues. They come to the home. They help assess these things. Um, we have parenting groups that I would suggest people go to. Um, there are counselors in our schools and children counselors specializing in trauma in our, in our community, very local who can help with these things. And so oftentimes it's looking at the family. What can the family do? What can the family afford? What can the family um, qualify for? And what can we do to get them connected to those resources and get them to a space where they feel like I have some options here and I don't feel like I'm at the end of my rope anymore?
0: Options. That's a big one. Resources. That's another big one. Uh, so certainly in, uh, in big cities, I mean, there's all kinds of doctors. Uh, if you have a you know, if you live in the southern part of the state, you've got the uh, University of Michigan Hospital, which has every doctor imaginable. You've got places like Beaumont. There's, there's, You know, you can't swing a stick without hitting a doctor. Yeah. But as you go north and the population gets a bit sparser, isn't mental health uh, help harder to find?
1: It can be. I think that one of the things that we miss oftentimes is that usually in the communities there's somebody within a 30 mile radius who has some sort of mental health training whether that is a person who's a religious clergyman who's had extra courses in mental health or whether that is a social worker who works out of town Um, i think it's important that our local you know police officers our local firemen our local emt people know who those people are and get those resources in a place that we can look at together and say, okay, so we might not have a CMH in our city right here, but who do we know that we can contact to get some advice about this? Or who do we know who might know where we can get some help? Um, A lot of times it's, you know, it's the, who, you know, we talk about stuff like that all the time. Who do you know? Um, this is going to be something that it's, it's very similar. I know our city police has a little QR code on the back of their cards, and it has, if you click on that and you go to that on your phone or whatever, it's a huge list of different resources here in Mount Pleasant and state and national-wide.
0: All right, so uh, it, it seems that Mount Pleasant has been proactive in addressing mental health issues, yes?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And uh, in particular, with your position being connected to public safety, Uh, they've drawn, they've drawn a line between, or drawn a connecting line between, uh, public safety and mental health. Uh, why is that?
1: Um, I would say that's mostly the work of Paul Lauria, the director of public safety. He has done a lot of lobbying and he has worked very closely with the agencies in town trying to have a better understanding of this. Um, <clears throat> excuse me there are multiple times that Paul will bring me in his office and be like I help me understand this thing that happened because I'm not I don't I don't have the mental health background to know what's going on with this and he's very curious about these things um, and that brings a huge opportunity for our city to be able to be ahead of some of the other cities in the same size in terms of mental health
0: yeah I would take a wild guess they're way ahead of cities this size yes and would you guess that that it's because of the presence of the university?
1: I would think the university helps. I think that we have a forward-thinking community here. Um, We have CMH embedded right in our community. It's down the road. Um, We have some pretty big agencies that are in really central Michigan. We're the middle. We're literally the middle, so (laughs) two hours from everything. And a lot of people from other rural, more rural counties come here for services, Um, You know, I know that our CMH here in town, I think they have five counties that they see. And so that's a huge spans of people that come here for help. Um, And being able to accommodate that and know what that looks like, um, I think it kind of lends to a more forward-thinking community.
0: Yeah, well, certainly I I think we can all agree that police officers are up against more than they ever have been on the job. Mental health is just one thing. Uh, So... The police, when they go out on calls, I mean, you just you never know what you're going to run into until you get there. You get a, I mean, police get countless domestic uh, disturbance calls because it's a it's a huge issue um, everywhere you live, and. It isn't, you know, just, okay. here's another uh, another domestic disturbance or domestic abuse call. And it's not until you get there and you start talking to people that you go, oh, maybe there's a mental health issue here. So when they get into these situations and it's all happening in real time, do the police officers themselves have to kind of make a diagnosis in the field?
1: No, absolutely not. I don't think that I even make diagnoses in the field. What I would say is that we often get talking to people and learn that, oh, you know what? The things you're talking about are somewhat beyond my understanding or beyond my um, capacity to assist you with. But, you know, there's this resource. um, There's this person you can talk to. We have this person who can come visit you right now today or call you right now today and talk to you about it. It seems like it's a big deal for you. Um, you know, the police, their main job is safety. They want to make sure our community is safe. They're trying to make sure that the people they're interacting with are safe. Um, that can have a mental health capacity to it, but they're not the experts in mental health, um, you know, and that's something that they understand, and they're they're trying really hard to implement people who do know a little bit more, um, and that really helps to impact how, um, that honestly, the two different the two different cultures interact together. Mental health culture and police culture, they're very different things. Um, you know, the way I might look at something might be looking very differently than the way an officer is looking at something. But we can talk to each other, frankly, and collaborate on that, and that makes a big difference.
0: Very good. For those people just tuning in, we're talking with Krista Carabelli here on Mount Pleasant City Connect. Uh, Krista is the Social crisis Advocate for the Mount Pleasant Division of Public Safety right here in Mount Pleasant. So, uh, Krista, we're typically we try to keep these conversations to a half an hour and we'll be running out of time but uh this issue is both important and interesting i'm wondering if you could hang around just a little bit longer and and talk about this yeah Uh, sure that's uh, fine thank you yeah because uh i you know this this i mean i every day i think i become a little more aware of how widespread an issue this is and how greatly it can impact any community and um Anytime I think we can raise awareness about it and try and advance our understanding of it a little bit, I, I think we all benefit. Um, so this we know this is a fairly new concept for police departments, and and certainly uh, we're fortunate, as you mentioned, we're very fortunate in Mount Pleasant to have a forward-thinking community that supports this kind of thing. And uh, clearly we have a forward-thinking director of public safety who uh, wants to be on top of it as well. Um So with all of this forward thinking, uh, how does that translate into training for our officers? What do they know about mental health?
1: Well, I speak with the officers daily. Um, I was just in one of uh, the squad room. Last week, we were talking about different coping mechanisms for somebody who may have – they ran into a child with autism, um, and they were asking me questions about that. Um, you know, so there's ongoing training happening just by communicating back and forth, and that goes for me, too. I'm learning a lot that I would not know before. Um on top of that, we do have more formal on, to, like ongoing trainings going on. I know CMH has a training on. I know that there are um, tra- trainings available, implicit bias training, um, different things that the officers can be connected with and be able to kind of learn more about mental health. Um, and you know, for my, for our purposes here, a lot of it is understanding what makes sense to, um, to handle in the moment, and what makes sense to maybe call someone else who has a little bit more understanding of this um there's a lot of situations where safety's involved and so they're going to handle the safety and then they're going to call me afterwards but that training element is that's part of it for us as well.
0: So uh are you ever called like let's say uh, uh officers on a call and things are starting to take a, a a bad turn would they possibly contact you during a while they're out in the field?
1: Yes. So there has been situations where they've called me to ask for support, whether that's I physically come in person or I talk to somebody on the phone. Um, I They've called me, you know, for, they um, don't want to get into too many details here, but different things that are uh, more traumatic than I would say, you know, your everyday car crash or, um, you know, I I think someone stole my bike. Um, you know, there are things that happen in our community that are a big deal that we don't always hear about every day because, it's happening every day. We talk about domestic violence, sexual assault. Um, we talk about, um, you know, fatalities, whether they're accidental or, or natural. Those kinds of things are big deals for families and people. And being able to call somebody when it's going on and say, what, what can you do? What can, we, can we get this person some assistance right now? That makes a huge difference between like, hey, here's a phone number, here's a card. Hopefully you get a hold of somebody sometime.
0: Right. Well and again, we can't force people to get mental health treatment. Correct. We offer we can offer resources uh and and different kinds of help, but I mean, I know from you know, I worked in uh I worked in radio stations for a long time in my career and I remember um uh, <laughs> uh radio and TV stations by the way are often magnets for paranoid schizophrenics. Hmm. Uh, and so we had a um, uh, we had a visitor to our radio station when I was working in Flint, Michigan, who demanded that we shut off our transmitter because it was interfering with the chip uh, that the government had placed in his brain. Yeah. He, you know, he was uh, and we didn't I mean, we were all taken aback, but you know we'd never seen this person before. And uh, one of our employees had a had a uh, his mother worked in mental health and. Seeing that this person was clearly not on the same page as the rest of us, he called his mother and she said, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he comes in every once in a while. He, when he goes off his medication, this is what happens. He thinks that the government has put a chip in his brain to control his thoughts and and that other things out in the world are interfering with that chip. And um, then he demands, you know, he'll demand some kind of action be taken. So... Uh, she said, "When he's on his medication, he's fine." Yeah. So she said, "Clearly, he's gone off his medication again." And uh, you know, so we're all we're all to us, we're thinking, "Why isn't somebody doing something about this?" Yeah. You have a person that you know is a paranoid schizophrenic, who you know intermittently goes off his medication, and we don't know if this person is dangerous mm-hmm. because. Our general manager was not going to shut off the transmitter uh, because one person came in and said it's upsetting the chip in my brain. Uh, how can the rest of us? What would have? What is a good course of action when you encounter a person like this?
1: Well, I'm gonna absolutely say there's there's um, there are people like this in our society all over the place. It's, we have people in Mount Pleasant who have diagnosed, you know, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. And, um, they're, they're human beings like the rest of us and they need the treatment if they want it, but then we're not, we don't force that on people either. Um, and so when you come across somebody like that, you know, it, in my mind, being compassionate as much as you can and understanding that person really believes that this is going on and they're struggling and they're stressed. Um, I tend to try and figure out who's that person's support. So do you have somebody that you talk to? Okay, so who, who helps you with this usually? Do you have someone that you talk to about this? Um, you know, can you tell me a little bit about where, um, where you normally go to feel safe? And asking these questions that might get that person to give you some information to get them the help that they need. Um, you know, and if they're not harming anybody, there's not really much to do in terms of making them do anything. Um, people can believe whatever they want to believe. They're, it's a free country. We're allowed to do those things. Um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't unsettling for some people at times. Um, so it's it's more about just understanding that this is somebody experiencing something. And it's not necessarily because they're, you know, the, the word people throw out is crazy, right? That's not a word we want to use or sick or upset. We want to use words like this person is experiencing something. And so we're going to do what we can to help or at least get them to a place where they feel safe.
0: Okay. Yeah, uh, uh, it's not something that happens every day. But when it does happen, you know, I mean, when you do, if you encounter a a paranoid schizophrenic, you you know, the average person does not know what to make of that. Yeah. And we can't, uh, I think, just as humans, our natural reaction is to be a little bit scared. Yeah. Because we don't know what this person may do next.
1: Yeah. And that's that's something that I think um, when somebody's acting normal with you and you know normal is like a relative term but when someone's doing the normal pleasantries like oh how are you how are you back and forth Um, that feels like oh this person's safe to me Um, but that's not always true either we just assume that based on the way that they're acting and so I think that when someone starts to act outside those norms that we've placed in our society it can feel unsettling it can feel dangerous um, even when that person may have not a dangerous bone in their body. So being able to, you know, the, the average everyday persons may not be able to <laughs> differentiate those things. Um, but it is important to remember that at any given point in time, anybody can decide to be an unsafe person. Um, but most of us don't want to be an unsafe person, even those experiencing mental health.
0: Yeah, we feel most at ease when our interactions are boring.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> when there's nothing of interest happening, we go, oh, this feels safe. Yep. Uh, okay. Well, that's, you know, I mean, it's uh, 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 the uh, uh, the frequency with which we encounter people with different uh, mental issues is, is increasing because people are more open about talking about it yes. now. And people will just tell you, I have anxiety, or I think I'm having a panic, dis- uh, a panic attack. Yes. Um, Whereas, you know, the openness and talking about it in the past was just not there. People would never admit to such a thing uh, because they didn't want to be seen as sick or different or as any kind of an outcast. And so we're we're bumping into it in our daily life a lot more often. Yes. And uh, it certainly behooves us to understand it better. So, I mean, I still don't always understand the extent of an anxiety disorder, you know, or, or a panic disorder. What does that really mean? And how might if someone's having a because I've known people that are having a panic attack, but it's all internal. Yes. And you would look at them. And you have no idea that they're having a panic attack, except that they're telling you, hang on, I'm, I'm having a panic attack right now. It's like, well, you seem really calm. <laughs> when I hear the word panic, I'm thinking about chaos.
1: Yeah, like running around the room, hands in the air hair on fire yeah, exactly
0: yeah but panic disorder does not mean that no so um can you expand a little bit because because it's so prevalent these days so uh on the one hand on the mild end a person can be having a panic attack without much in the way of visible symptoms Mm -hmm. when symptoms are visible what might we see
1: So, um, and I would hesitate to say it's mild, even if you're not seeing symptoms. A lot of people, when we talk about, um, you know, the way that we react to crisis. So there is, you know, fight, flight, or freeze, right? So if we look at that, and those are just the basic ones. So if someone's freezing, they might look really calm. But inside, they might be panicking. Um, If someone's in the flight mode, they might be running around the room, like, I got to get out of here, right? Um, And then if someone's in a fight, they might be like, I'm just going to deal with whatever this is and they're, they're going to push through it or they're going to push through whatever obstacle is, is causing their panic. Um, So, you know, oftentimes it's about reminding that person that it okay. In this moment, I'm here with you. We are safe. We're in a safe space. Take a moment and breathe. Um, When we do crisis intervention for people who are panicking or in crisis actively, you know, I've been on scene where someone's actively crying and they just cannot seem to focus on anything You know, we talk about the interventions um, that are sensory based or that are um, meant to help that person focus. So if you're panicking and I say to you, okay, look me in the eyes, can you see my eyes? What color are they? Okay, good. So can you tell me a little bit about what you ate for breakfast today? Hmm. Okay. Um, So if I ask you to count backwards from five to one, what number do you start with? What's the next one? You're not panicking anymore. Your brain has been disrupted. Redirected. Absolutely. So in those moments, um, being able to recognize when someone might be experiencing panic, reminding them that they're safe with you. Um, And then, you know, these coping mechanisms, they're very easy to find online. You can type in um, uh, sensory coping mechanism or intervention for crisis. And it will come up and say, you know, think of the five senses. What do you smell right now? What do you see? What do you hear? Placing that person back in their body is going to help them reorient to the world that's happening right then and there, and they'll be able to function a little bit better and be able to kind of work through those things a little bit better.
0: Okay. Um, I want to just run this by you because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm always fascinated by this entire field of study, right? There's, there's so much going on here, and um, I uh, was talking to somebody, uh, I think it was a, a graduate student in our psychology department here, And I was talking to this individual about what I perceived as an increase in mental health issues in college-age students. And I said, you know, I hear about this all the time. And it's certainly rising in the list of priorities uh, that universities are dealing with. And more universities are realizing that they need to have adequate resources on campus to handle it. But in my conversation with this person, I simply said, You know, as someone who studies psychology, can you tell me where this is coming from? Mm. If indeed this problem or this issue is on the rise, what's the cause? He said, oh, that's easy. It's social networking. He goes, Mm -hmm. we've studied this ad nauseum. He said, uh, uh, talk to anybody in psychology. They'll tell you that social networking is having a tremendous impact on mental health yet the whole country is addicted to social networking. (laughs) So in my mind, I'm saying we are making ourselves sick. And I think as much as you could tell people and even show them the data, if you could just present the data and say, look, social networking is making you sick, you should stop immediately. Mm. I don't see too many people stopping.
1: No, and I think that the the issue that we run into is specifically with social networking and con- in comparison to having people stop being so addicted to that. Um, you know, I, on my phone personally, I have it set up for a focus mode, so I'm not allowed to touch Facebook or Reddit or anything between the hours of 9am and 4pm. And that helps me focus on things. I don't get lost doing those kinds of things. Um, but that's something that I personally did for myself. Um, there are lots of tools we can use but I think that one of the bigger issues that we run into with this is that the connectivity that we have in everyday life versus what we can have on the internet is drastically different. I can connect with somebody in, you know, China in 0.5 seconds, that would take me weeks or months to do in a phone call or an, you know, a letter or anything else that would be more drastically affected. Um, so it's really difficult to say to people, yeah, social networking's, you know, really harmful in a lot of ways. So I want you to give up all of this ability to connect with others. That's really difficult to say, especially for people who may already be feeling lonely. Now there are studies that say social networking creates more loneliness and makes people feel more lonely. Yes. Um, and so there's, you know, it's a double-edged sword there. Um, but I also think it's hard for people to wrap their mind around that. Well, how can I be lonely when I have two hundred friends? And so that's that's a really hard concept. And I really recommend if you're struggling with that, talking to somebody and working through it, because there are treatments out there for things like that.
0: Yeah. Well, that brings up another uh, another question, and uh, and I've heard this in in uh, different conversations that um, in t- in terms of things like antisocial behavior. Mm-hmm. We see more of it in people who don't have meaningful connections in their lives, that a good pipeline to good mental health is to have meaningful relationships with a variety of people in your life, people that you care about and in turn care about you. And understanding what a meaningful relationship is can be critical because it's not a Facebook relationship. Right. Those people don't care about you. Those people are trying to grow their own network by adding you to their list. You're just a number. You're a click on TikTok. You're just a like. People need clicks to make money off their content. Mm -hmm. And so by their very nature, that's not going to be a meaningful relationship. Uh, You need to spend time with people Mm -hmm. face to face. You need to have real conversations. (laughs) You need to grab a friend and go to lunch. And just talk about what's new with you. What have you been up to lately? Um, engage in activities with real people in real places. The um, the, Internet is, the Internet is swallowing us whole. Yeah. And we're just allowing it. And the, the more and more that I, you know, because my ear is tuned in to these issues now. When people talk about mental health causes and mental health solutions, it gets my attention right away. And so this is what I've heard, you know, the people that have uh, 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 a good list of meaningful human connections in their lives tend to do better. So even if you are suffering from mental health issues, yes. uh, you shouldn't be avoiding people, maybe engaging people more on a, on a truly human and meaningful level can be helpful.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about that um, in relation to mental health and people who are struggling with mental health issues, you um, we have made a huge shift in our society in terms of what does it look like to quote-unquote treat mental health right so there was a push quite a while ago for hospitalization um, and we've moved back away from that to community settings because we do understand the meaning of having relationships in the community what does it mean to know your mailbox? you know, the person who drops your mail off by name? What does it mean to be able to go to my grocery store and know that Bob's gonna be there begging my groceries? Like there's there's things that make part of our lives feel meaningful and have those connections. And people with mental health issues or people who are struggling with mental health, um, they need those just as much or even more than maybe the average, average everyday person. And so, um, you know, our push in mental health nowadays is what are your social supports? Who can you talk to about these things? Who do you have these meaningful conversations with? Who are you seeing? Um, I can't tell you how many times I'll talk to somebody who's struggling with depression. And I'll say, when's the last time that you went out to lunch with somebody? Or when's the last time that you asked someone, um, you know, if they can come to your home and just hang out? Yeah. And they'll be like... <laughs> what do you mean?
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is that?
1: What, what are you talking about? I mean, I t- I get online and I play chess with this person and I'm like, okay, have you met them in person? No. Okay. Yeah. You know, and when we look at what COVID has done in terms of separating people and creating that, that huge disconnection, I can say personally, I still don't go to the grocery store that often. I have it delivered to my house. What am I missing by doing that? Right. Um, there are benefits and there are costs and weighing those risks for yourself. Do I have enough meaningful communications in other spaces in my life that that's okay? Well, Mm. if all I do is sit at home and I don't get out of the house and then I say, I'm gonna have my groceries delivered. Maybe that's a meaningful connection you're missing. So it's really about assessing your life and the things that are going on. What can I, what can kind of costs and risks am I taking by doing something differently or that's more quote unquote convenient?
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, that, you know, by nature, we are social animals. Yes. Socialization is part of what we are, and we do get many benefits, uh, some of which are mental health related, from these types of things. But technology is pushing us away from our true nature, which is to be social in a face-to-face kind of way, to be clannish or cliquish, and to seek out like-minded people and seek out meaningful relationships where... We share activities, we share conversation, uh, we share a meal, we share coffee, but we just get involved in each other's lives instead of this distance that we're putting between each other uh, with the internet and other forms of technology. Uh, But we're such hopeless addicts in these areas now that, you know, it's people are like well you can't kick me off of a tiktok you might as well just ask me to stop breathing
1: yeah yeah and i think that when you look at these things as well as recognizing that developers are very very smart <laughs> <laughs>
0: um
1: they, they understand are. the human psyche they know a well, lot about psychology
0: uh, yes and b- by the way sorry to interrupt but yeah. are they not hiring psychological to ex experts yes. to wire these things to mess with your brain i mean to get you I'd, addicted i wouldn't say they're
1: they're like trying to mess with your brain necessarily but i think what they do is they look at how people interact and they see the patterns of behavior cuz p- human beings are patterned individuals we're we're a species who follows patterns um it's very easy for us to say i'm going to drive the same way to work every single day because it's familiar and it's normal and i'm going to wave at the bus lady and (laughs) like we we know these things and so do the developers of these programs and so do the psychologists or mental health people that they talk to about these things um you know we have entire psychological um uh, educa- so, if we talk about industrial psychology for an, for a second, right? Industrial psychology is the study of psychology of how human behavior impacts, um, you know, how we work in the world. They they hire people like that to create surveys to determine who to hire is best fit for a job. Mm-hmm. So that that existed in some manner before this. Now it's just expedited like thousandfold in terms of what does this click on this photo mean to this individual and how can i present them with more photos like that to get more clicks and how can i get them into a chamber of people who think the same way who click on the same photo and yeah. do the same things and that drastically reduces the amount of individuals you're coming into contact with who might think differently than you it drastically limits the amount of people that you will be able to um you know maybe even tolerate in the world because you get into these bubbles of I, everyone thinks this way. Well, they don't though, but you don't notice that because you're in this mm-hmm. very developed, very um, cultivated space.
0: Yeah, it all, that all sounds bad to me. <laughs> <It's> all, <laughs> it, none, it can be. None there's, of that is helpful.
1: There's a lot of things that, um, you know, social media does that I think is helpful in terms of awareness and in terms of get, connecting people to resources, but I don't know that the people who have, the, finan- the financial gains in this are those people. Um, I think that if we look at things like TikTok, which is, from my understanding, a China-run, um, mm-hmm. a Chinese program, um, they're not interested in making sure Americans are healthy. Right. So, you know, understanding what am I looking at and what is the source of this, what does that actually mean, versus, um, you know, the local agency who's putting on a fundraiser and is trying to say, hey, come to our fundraiser here it is on Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. That's a very different experience. Um, so yeah, looking at some of these things from the lens of what, what is the motivation behind a me getting on this social media website and b the social media websites interest in me. Why? Right. So thinking about those things a little bit and, you know, talking these things through with people who are in your life, who, who are meaningful to you can be helpful.
0: Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, uh, before we wrap this up, I, there's another thing I wanted to ask you about because, on a state level here in Michigan, yes, uh, if I understand this correctly, when was it the last governor or is it? I think it was might have been Snyder, uh, shut down state mental health facilities.
1: Yes and no. So what happened was is that the funding and the the mental health. Um, Uh, focus shifted shifted so we we had something like 15 or more than 10 state hospitals here in in michigan at one point Um, a lot of them have quote-unquote shut down but they've been replaced by things like cmh or um, i think gratiot integrated networks and the one in gratiot county Um, they're not always called a cmh but it's a program that is still funded by government funds that helps people like we said earlier make meaningful connections in the community and still seek the treatment that they need. So we're not putting them somewhere where it's like, oh, that's, they're in that hospital. We don't want to look at them. They, they don't, you know, they're not bringing value to our society. Whatever that kind of mentality was at the time has very shifted to, we need these people in our society. They help us in many kinds of ways. They look at things differently. And if we can help them be able to integrate into society in a way that is meaningful for them and other people, why wouldn't we do that? So, we shifted away from funding things like hospitals to funding things like CMH.
0: Okay, so just to make sure I'm on the same page here, the hospital would be a place like an institution, someone goes to live there uh, long term, and community mental health services is more outpatient. So,
1: I don't know of many hospitals that are super long term. Um, Generally, um, the hospitals are short-term treatment facilities to get somebody stabilized so they can co- go back to their community um, we don't want we don't generally want people living in a hospital long term that's kind of like a, um, it, that doesn't generally help community mental health or mental health issues uh, with people they they usually exasperate them after a certain amount of time um, you know like you said, people were social people. We need to have that interaction. We want to be with our families. We want to have a dog. We want to do normal human quote-unquote things, <laughs> um, but we, we need these supports to do that. So a hospitalization might be something that's short-term. It might be three days. It might be a week. Um, it might be just long enough to get to a person where they can say, okay, We've had the supports we need, we've had the medications we need, we've had the um, doctor's appointments that we needed, and I want to continue my treatment outside of here in a space where I can be an individual, I have control over my own body, I have control over the things that are going on in my world, um, and if I'm getting the help that I need, I can do that and be successful.
0: Okay, so uh, the shift, so the community, when we try to define community mental health services, this is uh, greater access to counseling that yes. helps people deal with whatever mental issues they're having, but incorporate it into their daily life so they can go about living and continue, but mitigate the effects of whatever mental health issues they're wrestling with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and our, our local CMH has a ton of programs. I highly recommend somebody or anybody go look at their website and just scroll through the programs. They have them listed out by adult, child, and family Um, And so, you know, they have group therapy, family therapy, individual therapy. They have um, therapists who come to the home. They have um, assessments. They have, um, you know, support groups. They've got everything that you could possibly think of for support for people. Um, You know, they even have um, people going into our local jail and talking to them. Um, So having that in the community is a huge help, and it helps the people who might not feel like they could make it on their own, have a little bit more of an edge to do so. Um, You know, there's times when I'm not sure I can make it on my own and I'm here supposed to be helping other people. (laughs) So there's times (laughs) where I'm like, I need to talk to somebody about what's going on. Um, And that's okay. And being able to get that support in a non-judgmental way, in a way that helps you live in your society that you want to live, then why wouldn't we do that?
0: Yeah, why wouldn't we? I mean, we're all uh, gonna end up In a crisis situation eventually that's just life yeah I, Uh, i don't
1: know a single person who hasn't had some sort of crisis and you know crisis again is another relative thing you know someone's crisis might be someone else's tuesday afternoon that doesn't mean it's not important to that person and that doesn't mean it's not impacting them. So
0: yeah, one day you feel you're ahead of the wheel and the next day you feel it's running over you.
1: Absolutely. And Absolutely. you've got
0: to, you know, you still have to go about your life and it sometimes it seems like it's hard to do that. It's okay to ask for some help yes. uh to just get you through those those bumpy parts cuz they're going to happen and if you can get some coping skills when it happens next time You'll be a little bit better at recognizing what it is, knowing you're going to get through it, and being able to use some tangible skills to help you do that. Um,
1: Yeah, we often talk about as therapists that we want to work ourselves out of the job. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that would be ideal. It'd be fantastic if we woke up tomorrow and
1: society was perfectly healthy, and we were no longer needed. We have yeah. to go be dog walkers or something. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't know that that will happen. Um, but it's a nice, it's a nice thought. <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah. Uh, Okay. well, that's uh, I mean, that's a great goal because, yeah, in a perfect world, we don't need you right uh, in your present form. Yes. But um, okay. so we're we're actually uh, uh, we've carried on uh, another half an hour here. So I am going to have to wrap this wrap this conversation up. But I could literally talk to you Mm -hmm. all day about this because it is fascinating. Uh, Last question. So let's let's help people connect to resources. What mental health resources are available for CMU students?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So CMU students um, are unique in that they have a couple of resources that um, are available to students here on campus. Um, I am a two time graduate from CMU. I've used some of these as my myself as well. Um, we have the counseling center here. I think it's at Faust Hall. Um, that's available to students. They help people with a variety of situations, um, whether that's they're experiencing grief or they're experiencing test anxiety or they're having trouble with their roommates or, you know, um, we also have, um, I believe SAPA is here on campus as well. They help with people who have been assaulted um, and and helping with that as well. Um, Then we also have what's called the CCCD. Not sure if you're familiar with that. That is the Center for Community Counseling um, and Development. So it is out of the counseling program. Which is where I graduated from here at CMU. They have a free counseling set up that students who are master's level, who have had training, they're like in their somewhat last year of schooling, are being supervised and being, um, being, um, given the opportunity to counsel somebody so it would be you sitting down with an almost completely trained counselor and getting some free service to get counseling and there's no requirement for that you don't have to have insurance you don't have to have any sort of um specific uh you know um qualification to get that counseling and what's cool about that is it's there's also telehealth so if you're not a student on campus you can also receive that service Mm, very good yes yes
0: yeah uh, I, I'm so glad uh, to be able to get that information out there because uh, not everybody is comfortable asking for help, but I think you know, the more accessible we can make it, the easier it may seem to reach out because help is all around you. Yeah, absolutely. You just, yeah. If you just, uh, look around, you'll see that there are many people who can help you through, a, a tough situation or just help you cope with whatever it is that's on your mind and, uh, improve the quality of your life. Um, and so uh, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, and so, everyone, we have been talking with Krista Carabelli, the social crisis advocate for Mount Pleasant Division of Public Safety. And we have learned once again that Mount Pleasant is really kind of on the cutting edge of dealing with mental health issues in the community, which improves the quality of life really for all of us. Absolutely. And it gives us all resources that we can use because I think we're starting to understand that we can all benefit from these resources at some point in our life Uh, some days uh, you know it feels like the walls are closing in and you don't have to feel like that all the time there is a there's a way to cope with it so we're gonna have to uh to wrap it up right there uh for today Krista thank you so much for being here and letting us access uh your brain
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if anybody is seeking help or needs help here in our communities, you're welcome to call your local 211, get some information, or the new national 988 number, which helps mental health crises as well.
0: Very good. Thanks, Krista. Thank you. You've been listening to Mount Pleasant City Connect. The third Wednesday of each month, we talk to people uh, here in the city of Mount Pleasant to learn how our city runs and learn about all the great things that it has to offer us. And there's quite a bit. We dig deep. And we hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. But now it's time to get back to the music on Mountain 91.5.